Hello and welcome to another special Grattan podcast on the COVID-19 crisis. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're talking about the impact of the COVID-19 shutdown on employment, how many jobs might be lost, in what sectors and industries, and for how long. To explore these issues and more, I'm joined by not one, but two Grattan gurus. First, the director of our Household Finances Program, Brendan Coates. Brendan, welcome to you. Hi, Paul. And Brendan and I are joined by Grattan Senior Associate, Matt Cowgill. G'day, Matt. Hi, Paul. Brendan and Matt have just published an ambitious working paper entitled Shutdown, Estimating the COVID-19 Employment Shock. I'll come to the findings soon, but first, Matt, you really did set yourself a big task here. How did you go about it? Uh, we did. That's right, Paul. Um, so this is a, a really challenging thing that we've tried to do, which is to figure out how many people might lose their jobs in the next couple of months due to the uh, shutdowns and social distancing responding to, to COVID-19. I guess the first thing we tried to do was to look at what data was already out there on, on what's happening to the labour market in Australia and in comparable countries around the world. What we found was that there's not really um, any kind of hard data, at least for Australia, uh, about how jobs are holding up in this period. But there is a lot of information we can draw upon to, to really give us the sense that uh, this shock is going to be pretty big, or in fact, it already is quite big um, for the Australian labour market. So consumer confidence plummeted to by far its uh, lowest level on record. Um, Google searches for a range of unemployment-related terms absolutely spiked in March, and particularly at the end of March. And for countries around the world where we do have data on the number of people claiming unemployment benefits, for example, um, those numbers have just been absolutely eye-watering in, in the US, for example. The number of people claiming unemployment benefits is many, many times the peak that they saw um, during the Great Recession in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, so all of which told us that uh, the labour market shock is likely to be quite big in Australia as well, because we, we know that you know, the, the shutdown here has been quite extensive and justified on, on public health grounds. Um, but we really don't know how many people can expect to lose their jobs in Australia in the coming months. So what we did to try and get a handle on that question was we pulled in two sources of information. One was um, some data on uh, diff for different jobs, different occupations, whether they require um, workers to be in close physical proximity to other people. So this is some American data that goes through nearly a thousand different occupations and, and rates them based on how much they require workers to be near other people. And we've converted that over to, to the Australian occupational um, landscape. So we, we think that it's plausible that um, the prospect that someone loses their job during this, this period ahead is going to be related to how much um, they're required to be near other people. So for the most part, generalising, jobs that are near other people are less likely to, to be able to be done from home and less likely to, to endure through this shock. But to, to provide a bit of a check on that, we also went through, some Grattan researchers went through each of the 88 uh, industries in Australia and just manually um, estimated what proportion of jobs we think are at risk in each of those industries. And then we kind of combined those estimates of various Grattan researchers as well. 
Um, so in our paper, we use both of these sources of information, the data on, on physical proximity requirements of individual jobs, as well as our manual estimates about um, the, the prospect of job loss in various industries. Okay, Matt, so let's cut to the chase. What did you conclude? How bad is this going to get? Uh, we concluded that it's it's going to be quite bad, somewhere between um, one of the worst and the very worst uh, shocks to employment in Australia's history. There's a pretty uh, broad range of, of possibilities. We think that somewhere between 14 and 26% of people are likely to lose work in, in this quarter, so in the coming weeks and months. Um, so somewhere between about a sixth and about a quarter of the Australian workforce looking to, to be out of their jobs. That's a really big number and, and um, would likely send Australia's unemployment rate either to its worst since the early 90s recession or its worst since the Great Depression. Just tell me a little bit, I know there is great uncertainty here and that this is a, you know, a movable feast, but, but tell me a bit more about the unemployment rate. Uh, how high might that get? Yeah, so our central expectation, our kind of what we think is the most plausible result here is that it will get to about 12%. We've said 12.2, uh, the middle of our, the various estimates we have in our paper. That's a little bit more pessimistic than the, the Treasury that is forecasting about 10%. It's a little bit below some of the forecasts that are out there from various financial institutions. So we're sort of in the range of some other forecasts out there. Um, we do think so. We've said before that maybe around a quarter of the workforce could lose work. If all of those people were to become unemployed, the unemployment rate would hit 30% which is an astronomical number that we've never been anywhere near, even in the depths of the Great Depression. But that won't, that won't happen because for, for two main reasons. First of all, some of the people who lose work will continue to get paid thanks to the JobKeeper program. So some people will be out of work, might be not, not actually doing any work, but will still be getting paid, in which case they'll still be uh, considered as employed, so they won't count towards the unemployment rate. And others, other people who uh, lose work might drop out of the labour force entirely and therefore wouldn't be considered uh, unemployed either, they'd be not in the labour force. So for that reason, we think something in the vicinity of 12% is is a plausible unemployment rate. And we've presented a range of scenarios that go from about 10 to about 15% in our paper. Okay, so horrible figures, 10 to 15% unemployment. Uh, yes. Almost unprecedented, but I'm a bit confused, Matt. The ABS released the most recent, their most recent unemployment figures just last week. And am I right, they weren't nearly this bad? Uh, you, you're quite right, Paul. Um, the issue is with those figures is that they predate um, the, the shutdowns and rules around social distancing that were brought in in late March. And so they don't really tell us much at all about how the labour market has reacted to, to the COVID-19 response. So the ABS did that survey, the Labour Force survey, in the middle of March, two weeks in the middle of March. And people who responded to that survey were asked about what they were doing 
uh, when it comes to employment in the week prior. So the, the survey actually covers the period from the 1st of March until the 14th of March. Now that's before um, the, the limit was imposed on gatherings of, of more than 500 people, before the rules on pubs and cafes and gyms and so on. And we've actually had a look at, at daily data from Google on what people were, were searching for on the internet. And we can see that People weren't searching for words like Centrelink or Newstart really until the end of the month after some of those new requirements um, were brought in. And so the ABS numbers, because they pertain to the first half of March, really don't capture the impact of, of this shock of the COVID-19 response on the jobs market in Australia. Okay, got it. And, and Matt, I thought one of the most valuable parts of um, your paper is that you've been able to break things down a bit. Can you tell us a bit about which age groups in Australia, which income groups, which sectors and industries are copping at worst at the moment in terms of unemployment? Absolutely, Paul. I think it won't be a surprise to people that we expect that the hospitality industry will be hardest hit, or in fact, already is being hardest hit by the, the public health response to COVID-19. So we think that well over half of workers in the accommodation and food services industry, which is hospitality in colloquial terms, are, are likely to be out of work if they're not already. Um, other industries like arts and recreation, for example, and retail also very heavily hit. Uh, it's not a surprise then um, when you think about those industries and the uh, the kind of typical workers in those industries that people on lower incomes we think are more likely to lose work during this crisis, um, which is consistent with the fact that it's industries like hospitality that are hardest hit, and younger people are also more likely to lose work um, during this crisis than, than older people as well. Again, consistent with the, the industry profile. Uh, we find that that a larger proportion of women than men are likely to lose work, but it's it's a substantial proportion. Um, of both women and men who we think are, are likely to lose work. So roughly 30% of women and about um, a, a little bit below 25%. Okay, Brendan Coates, can I bring you in here? One thing that occurred to me as I listened to Matt is that the JobKeeper package, that is the federal government's $130 billion wage subsidy package, is proving to be a pretty important policy intervention here, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Paul. So the JobKeeper package is pretty unprecedented. So we're going to be spending $130 billion over the course of six months. Uh, so that's something like 7% of annual GDP or more like 13% of annual GDP of, of GDP over that six-month period, replacing the incomes on both the income and the, on the firm and the household side uh, that would otherwise, uh, that's been lost essentially because of the COVID-19 economic shock because of the public health measures that we've put in place. And so the scheme goes a long way to doing what Scott Morrison is calling building a bridge to the other side. Uh, so for if you're on earning, say, in the bottom 30, 40% of the income distribution, so if you're earning, say, $40,000, $50,000 a year or less, then the scheme is largely going to replace your, your pre-COVID income if you find that you lose your job. And so that group are largely insured against the costs of COVID-19. It essentially means that government is... Uh, basically filling in the role of insurer of last resort for that group. And then we'll work out later how we pay back that $130 billion um, 
along with the other economic support that's been put in place over the course of the next 20 or 30 years. Okay, but nonetheless, you're very concerned about the prospects of what you call the second round impacts of this crisis. What do you mean, Brendan, by this second wave and why might it be so damaging? Uh, so it's not just those that are directly affected by COVID-19 that are going to um, pull back on their spending, either as firms or households. It's also those that are, you know, the suppliers or of firms that are directly affected or are just worried about the, the extent to which the public health crisis and the shutdowns, you know, slow down uh, the economy and therefore, you know, their incomes also come under threat in time. So we're already seeing those firms and households not directly affected tighten their belts. So discretionary spending, for example, is down quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we know that overall spending from some of the data from Alpha Beta is down 18% compared to where it was pre-crisis. Um, and certainly a lot of firms, even in the sort of sectors that you would expect wouldn't be as directly affected by COVID-19, are reporting that they're seeing a big fall in their incomes or they're seeing falls in their incomes on the ABS data. So the other part of this, of course, is that Australia is part of a well-connected into a global economy and all of our major trading partners are going through something similar. So we're seeing a synchronised downturn amongst all our major trading partners that's going to increase the depth and intensity of the recession because those second round impacts in terms of fewer demand for our exports are going to be really large. So even China, which is you know, coming out the other side of the first wave of COVID-19, they introduced shutdowns earlier than everyone else and they're now, they've seen infection rates fall. You know, even now China is still only operating on the basis of some of the, the real-time data we get on say coal consumption or electricity. They're still about 10 to 15% uh, below full capacity. And you gotta remember 10% below full capacity is kind of the definition of a depression normally. So even though they're now in a much better state than they were a couple of, a few weeks ago, they're certainly not back to normal. And we actually don't know whether any economy in the world will be able to fully reopen or come close to fully reopen without that having a big impact on uh, rising rates of COVID-19 cases and then the need for repeated shutdowns. Okay, so we need to brace for a second wave. We're in the middle, perhaps, of a synchronised global recession. How big is the, the, how big's the threat to financial stability in Australia, Brendan? If you'd asked me this three weeks ago, I would have said the risk was enormous. Or a month ago, I would have said the risk was enormous. I am probably less worried about that today than I was. And one of the, the reason for that is one of the silver linings of the global financial crisis is we've already had a practice run of this part of the policy response. So in 2008, 2009, the US financial system really fell over. Um, and that led to runs on banks around the world, lots of problems in corporate debt markets, a lot of cascading uh, problems as essentially banks and then later by extension, later firms and to a degree households weren't able to live up to their liabilities and there was a range of defaults. And what we did in that crisis was we, we learned what we had to do to support the financial system through a period of significant distress. Now this time around, uh, you know, we haven't had a range of bad debts starting the crisis. Instead, we've had, um, you know, a completely exogenous and sudden shock. Um, and what um, what policymakers have done is they've they've tried to essentially safeguard the financial system um, before we even got to the point where uh, those effects really started to show. So, uh, so far, we've actually done pretty well on the risk on maintaining those risks to financial stability. You know, the government's done. Um, 
the 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 Reserve Bank's done interest rate cuts. It's moved to QE, the quantitative easing. So they're they're buying bonds to to keep government debt really cheap and therefore anchor long-term interest rates across the economy. Um, and the real question is how long this crisis lasts, how long the economic shutdown takes place. Eventually, we will see rising rates of um, of bad debts, for example, in the banking sector, because some households, you know, if you're a restaurateur or if you're um, involved in arts and recreation, you know, we don't know when those sectors of the economy can restart. And even though government has done a lot by saying, you know, you can defer your mortgage repayments, at some point, uh, there's going to be some sort of reckoning where those, some of those people will have to, will have to acknowledge that they probably can't repay some of those debts and we'll have to work out who pays those costs down the track. Okay, so you managed to, I think, spy a little bit of a silver lining in that answer, Brendan, but here's the big question. How long might it take for Australia's economy to snap back and for the unemployment rate in particular to get back to pre-crisis levels? Well, Paul, that's all a function of the public health response and whether we've managed to solve the public health crisis. Because we're really not going to see a, recover, a large-scale and broad-based recovery in the economy unless, you know, firms and workers can be confident that they're not going to have to re-engage or re-enter some sort of shutdown to keep an outbreak under control. And so what's, I think, worrying me here, the, 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 what's of, of great concern is that, you know, we haven't yet seen a way of any country actually solving this crisis. So Grattan Institute has advocated on, you know, quite strongly in the public debate that we should be aiming for eradication, that we should be looking to essentially eradicate COVID-19 in Australia over the course of the next two months, three months, by maintaining the kind of shutdowns we've got in place. Uh, and then you would be able to reopen most things. You know, shops, bars, restaurants could go back to normal schools, most public institutions. The only thing you would lose is probably international tourism uh, because you'd have to have very strict quarantines at the border. Um, and that approach would probably be the least economically costly. Uh, you know, if we achieve that, we'd do, be doing better than everyone else. The alternative, which is what the rest of the world is going to have to do, apart from New Zealand, is probably aim to hold infection rates at about one. So for each person that's infected, they only infect one other person. So you don't see a cascading exponential growth in an outbreak again. Um, and under that strategy, we expect some of the uh, spatial distancing can come off. Certainly schools, say in Victoria, could probably reopen in time. But we don't really know what else we could reopen before we got to the point where infection rates go back above one. And so we're looking at, you know, certainly it's certainly likely or it's a real possible in Australia if we don't do eradication that we'll see a long, slow recovery because we won't be able to go back to normal essentially until a vaccine arrives, which, you know, at best is 18 months away. And probably more importantly, the rest of the world is looking at something similar. So you read the plans that have been proposed in the United States about how they get back to normal at some combination of mass testing um, at enormous scale and uh, contact tracing by digital contract tracing using an app. Um, and the hurdles to achieving that are very high. Um, and so we shouldn't expect the rest of the world gets back to normal for quite a long time. And that's going to mean a sustained period where the economy is probably growing or is performing less strongly than it did pre-crisis and unemployment potentially is higher for a while, and that's where we get really long-term costs. But, Brendan, can I just pick you up on, on that point? You say that 
Grattan is advocating an eradication strategy and we'd all, of course, on the face of it, love to see that. But you and Matt have just produced a working paper which shows that the shutdown and the social distancing rules are throwing perhaps millions of Australians out of work. Surely that means the measures need to be lifted as soon as possible, doesn't it? No, I, I don't think it does in this instance for two reasons. One, it's not as if, as we've just talked about, if you lifted the restrictions, we would go back to normal. Uh, you are going to see some potentially relatively severe forms of spatial distancing in Australia for quite a long time, up until we get a vaccine, if we cannot eradicate COVID-19 from Australia. And so if you're weighing up the costs of a two to three month shutdown in order to eradicate the virus, or 18 months, possibly longer of, um, of possibly fairly severe restrictions, uh, you'd have to believe that the economic costs uh, per month of the latter strategy of less severe restrictions are about six times less per month than what they would be under the shutdown scenario. Um, and I tend to think that's relatively unlikely. The second part is that obviously, you know, there's a large number of people who are, you know, out of work as a result of COVID, uh, but the government is stepping in and essentially using its balance sheet to protect them in the short to medium term. And so, in a sense, the, the JobKeeper policy is probably better designed for a short-term shutdown than a sustained period where you've got little parts or quite potentially quite a lot of the economy shut down, essentially because it requires workers to stay with their existing firm in order to, um, in order to qualify for the payment, um, and they can't go and take another job somewhere else. Um, so they've got to stay where they are, which probably slows the pace of reallocating workers in the economy, and that makes a lot more sense for a shorter shutdown than if you know, we accept that recreation and major sporting events don't open, reopen for 18 months. You probably want those people to start to move to other parts of the economy over time. Okay, so I want to um, ask you, Brendan, about the policy implications of all this in the Australian context. And I want to, if, as it were, look backwards and look forwards. It seems to me, looking backwards over the last uh, month or so, the policy responses from the federal and state governments to date seem to me to be pretty well targeted. Would you agree? Yeah, I think we need to give credit where credit's due. They've done a pretty good job in a very short period of time of putting together, quite frankly, unprecedented levels of economic support uh, to help households and firms to survive this period. Now, they're pretty the odd misstep along the way, you know, so announcing the um, the shutdowns before we had a policy in place to deal with the economic costs via JobKeeper was, you know, probably not the best strategy. Uh, but, you know, we were making these decisions in such a short period of time. We went from spending, you know, four to $5 billion to spending $200 billion in, in government money over the course of two to three weeks. Uh, so I think it's worth giving them quite a lot of credit for what they've done. There are some holes. Uh, so the fact that the, the JobKeeper policy does not help temporary migrants is a mistake because uh, a lot of those people have been in Australia for a long time contributing to the tax base. Uh, they've, they've, they're attached to their, their employers, but they can't get the support uh, and they can't go home because it's very hard to actually get a flight out of Australia. So, for example, if you are from India, you literally cannot get into India right now, even as a, as a citizen. The, the lockdown has, has been very severe. There's also issues around casuals. They probably should just allow casuals onto the higher rate of the JobKeeper payment rather than those that are currently casuals for less than 12 months are excluded. And there is an issue where, because the payment is flat rate, there are some high income earners 
who like middle to high income earners, anyone earning sort of average full-time weekly earnings, which is about $85,000, it puts you in the top 30% of the income distribution. Uh, but those people are not as well insured against uh, COVID, economic costs of COVID-19. And that potentially could have some problems down the track in terms of other support being needed because some of those people may in fact um, they will they will not replace as much a larger share of their income and therefore when they um they since their costs are linked to their income they might have more trouble paying their mortgages and paying the rent and everything else. Brendan each of those gaps if you like in the job keeper package uh to fill them in would of course cost even more money. Isn't the, hasn't the government got a point the line has to be drawn somewhere? There's certainly, we should always keep us a, a long-term viewer, an eye on the budgetary costs, the long-term budgetary costs of what's going on here. Um, but I think in this instance, the costs of not acting in terms of for our economy are probably larger than the costs of acting. So, um, Younger generations certainly will probably bear the burden of those higher debt, those higher that higher level of public debt over time. Um, but they are also the ones that are more likely to be affected if we have a long, slow recovery from this period. If we have a long recession with high rates of unemployment, that has always hurt younger people a lot more. Um, and the actual costs of that insurance that we're offering to people via JobKeeper is relatively cheap in the sense that the interest rate that you, we Australia would pay on that debt that they can lock in now for 10 to 30 years is somewhere in the range of less than 1% for 10 years and about 1.5% for 30 years. So the costs of actually having, of, of paying for the support that's needed, they aren't actually as large as you might think, uh, certainly in the short to medium term. We should only be thinking about paying back these debts over the course of 20 or 30 years. Okay, so let's look forward over those 20 or 30 years, Brendan. What sort of specific policy should governments be looking at from here on? Well, if I could just jump back a bit, I think the thing we haven't talked about yet that we should is, you know, at the moment we've engineered a public health public a recession to achieve a public health objective, to shut down parts of the economy to prevent an outbreak of COVID. In time, when we solve the public health crisis, we'll be in a world where um, we will have a more classic demand-side recession. There will be a lack of demand because balance sheets of firms and households will be weakened because they've had to, some of them will have to borrow to get themselves through the crisis or draw down on savings. And at that point, um, some of the, the emergency measures from the government will probably come off, but they'll need to be replaced with more general economic stimulus like that which we use during the global financial crisis. So we're talking about you know, cash payments to households, maybe building some more social housing, which is a very effective economic stimulus for the construction sector. And that obviously adds to those economic, that budgetary cost. But if we don't do that, then unemployment will stay a lot high for a lot longer and that will be much more costly in the long run. To go to your, your, uh, your question, which is about those long-term policies, uh, you know, this is going to have long-lasting impacts on the Australian economy and its ability to grow. Uh, it's the largest shock that we've seen since World War II. Um, and we're going to have to see a post-COVID world is going to look quite a lot different to a pre-COVID one. So some sectors of the economy will be larger than others. Uh, so I suspect air travel is probably not going to return to the way it was before. Tourism will take a long, long time to come back. And so what we do need to do is allow people and firms and capital to move between sectors in the economy uh, to where it can now most productively be used. And that means 
you know, looking at the tax system to make sure that we're making got the right incentives for people to work, looking at land use planning so that, um, you know, we can build the kind of buildings we need, whether it be commercial or residential, where that where those growth opportunities are, looking at competition policy. And I think that's something that it's hard to canvas right now, but will certainly be the focus of future Grattan work from here. So, Brendan, just sum up for me, and I'm, I'm looking for any sort of uh, good news that we might be able to glean from all this. It seems to me that the health response in Australia has been pretty good and that the results thus far are, to a degree, the envy of the world. Do you have confidence that economically we will get through this and that our governments are capable of producing the best result long term? So certainly on the public health side, we've done pretty well. We've done better than almost anyone else in the world. We had the advantage of watching it for a couple more weeks than the average, uh, say, country in Europe, but we used that time relatively effectively. Uh, on the economic side, we've done more, you know, our economic support as a share of GDP is larger than almost any other country going around. So again, very high marks for the government for what they've done there. Um, I think it's all mat a matter of, of, of policy from here. So, you know, we have to make the right choices on the public health response, and that could minimise both the economic and health costs of COVID-19. And then we can make, given whatever choices we make in that world, policy can help absorb some of those costs and cushion the blow so that we can come out of the other side of this in pretty good shape. We're choosing between a set of pretty unpalatable options, but we are lucky in Australia that probably on the whole, with low public debt as a share of GDP, uh, with you know pretty good institutions, with a relatively pretty good health system and effective health response to date, uh, we're probably luckier than most countries in the world and have better prospects coming out the other side than most. Thank you, Brendan. And thank you, Matt, for your expertise and your insights today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read Brendan and Matt's paper on the employment shock of the COVID-19 crisis, or indeed any of Grattan's now numerous reports and articles on this crisis, go to our website, grattan.edu.au, and our blog, which is blog.grattan.edu.au. It's all there, including our previous podcasts and webinars on the crisis. And you can start to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at Grattan Inst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you found this podcast valuable, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes or Spotify and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>